everlasting. Lord, we thank you for pulling us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Thank you that you are worthy to be celebrated. You are worthy to be feared. You are worthy to be lifted up and enjoyed. There's none like you. We gather here at the first of the week, Lord, to rest in you, to reorient our minds around you and your people, to be built up, to be encouraged, to be equipped in what you are calling us to be and to, to do. And so we thank you, Lord, this morning that uh, you have called us together, uh, to gather together to make much of you. Father, we don't lift just ourselves to you. We lift up other churches. We think of Friendship Baptist Church this morning over in Jefferson, that you would be with them and encourage them. Uh, be with uh, Pastor Ken Jones over there, Lord, as he preaches your word. And Father, with the saints there, that you would encourage them and make yourself known to them. Lord, that you would help them in uh, reaching this community with your great gospel. And so we thank you uh, for them, Lord. Father, we lift up other churches in our net network. We pray for uh, Trinity Bible Church in Wyoming, Lord, that you would be with them. Thank you for the brethren there. We lift up Tim Feathers and his elders there, that you would be with them, that you would encourage them, give them strength in all that is on their plates, all that they are uh, have to do. Lord, that you would um, encourage the church, that you would keep uh, unity, that you would give elders wisdom and shepherding and the deacons as they serve many people this winter. Lord, um, we just thank you for these uh, churches in our network that we can lift up and make, um, bring to your, to your throne, Lord, and that you would make them to be great uh, lighthouses of your truth. And so, Father, we lift up Trinity Bible to you uh, this morning. Father, we also lift up uh, the persecuted church. We know that your church is suffering in many places of the world. And while we are always at war, spiritually speaking, uh, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, that uh, in other places there is a great persecution of your church. And so we pray for Christians in Morocco uh, this morning, that you would be with them, Lord, as they stand for your truth, as they seek to honor you. And God, that you would uh, give them strength in making much of your name, even amidst uh, persecution. Father, we lift up people that have never heard of you, that uh, cannot gather this morning and worship you because they've never heard of you. Their hearts are far from you and they are living in darkness, completely blinded by the enemy of this world. And so, Father, we lift up um, the Sidabao people, Lord of China, that you would be with them, that, Lord, you would bring the gospel to their language, that you would bring uh, missionaries to them, that you would lay it on the hearts of your church to go and to answer this call to take the gospel into the darkest regions of the world. And Father, that you would strongly support them. And Lord, that we would be oriented here uh, in, an, in a free place to uh, make that a priority, that your gospel would be preached in all lands. And so, Father, we pray for that. Lord, we pray for our world, we know that there's trouble in so many places. We continue to lift up the conflicts in Ukraine and Russia and Palestine and Israel and uh, even uh, the ongoing conflicts with Yemen, uh, with the Houthis there. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would give your grace in those situations, that you would show your mercy, that you would draw many to yourself. Lord, we know that you're working all these things according to the word of your power and that nothing escapes you. But we lift these things up as there's much suffering. There's many that have lost loved ones, and many are marginalized through war. And uh, we know that there's uh, refugees that uh, are in crisis. And so we lift these things to you. We know that they don't escape your attention, but Lord, uh, we need your wisdom. And so we ask for your help there to pray for these. Lord, we lift up our own military and we pray for them. We pray for wisdom of our government leaders, President Biden and his cabinet, Lord, as they make crucial decisions each day. And Father, why we don't agree sometimes with their policies and procedures, Lord, we are instructed to pray for them. And so we do. We lift them to you. We thank you for giving leaders to us. And we know that they're meant to uh, bring 
uh, evil under judgment and reward good. And we know often those things are turned upside down in our day and age. And so we ask for your grace and your mercy upon our country. Father, we pray for those that are grieving. We, uh, we pray for those that have lost loved ones, that you would wrap your arms around them, that you would comfort them in a way that only you can. Father, we pray that you would um, be with those that uh, are expecting. Lord, we think of Whitney and Sarah and uh, even grandbabies, like the Finney's grandbaby in the womb, Lord, that you would be with these children, that you would uh, in just, just encourage the mothers and the fathers, that, Lord, you would bring great health to these pregnancies and, and great deliveries uh, with no complications, God. We just ask for that. Father, we pray uh, for those that are healing. We think of many who have been sick that we continue to pray for. John Cordy, Lord, our missionary within RBNet, uh, battling esophageal cancer. Uh, we think of Zoe Lawrence, Lord, who's still healing from her procedures. We think of Christina Graybeal as well, Lord, that you would continue to be with her and her treatments. And others, Lord, that are um, healing. We continue to pray for Pastor Tim, Lord, as he deals with um, his heart issues and uh, his foot healing, Lord, that you would continue to be with him. Father, we pray for our shut-ins. We think of uh, Jack Tyler and also for Janice, that you would be with them. Lord, show them your love and your care for them. And uh, Lord, these um, that, that you care for, even though they're not able to be here. Father, we pray for those uh, who have procedures this week. We think of Alyssa having uh, oral surgery, getting her wisdom teeth out this week on Thursday, that you would be with the doctors, and Lord, that you would bring quick healing to Alyssa. We thank you that we can cast these cares upon you and that you care for us. Father, we thank of those who are traveling. We lift up the seats to you uh, who are gone this week. We pray for others that uh, may be traveling. Pray for those who are sick. We think of the Nelsons and others that are battling sickness. We thank you for helping Christiana feel better. We thank you for all these things, Lord, and we, we leave them in your hands. Father, we lift up Abigail, spend love to you as she prepares to go uh, to Bolivia, that you would surround that team with strength and health as they prepare to go, that you would bring all the final uh, order to plans and procedures. Father, that you would um, bring great relief to those that they minister to. And Lord, by your grace, would you save some that uh, they're able to share the gospel with. And so we ask for your help there and your grace. We continue to lift uh, Brian and Sarah to you, Lord, as, as Brian starts his ministry out at Orion, that you would strongly encourage them and bring them grace, Lord, as they um, get used to uh, that new congregation. And so, Father, we lift these things to you. We continue to lift up Christ alone to you, that you would strongly support them, bring them leadership, bring them uh, encouragement, and, uh, Father, that you would add to their numbers as you uh, see fit, um, Lord, encourage uh, Pastor Tim and Cindy as well, Lord. Thank you for your grace in these ways. Thank you now, Lord, as we look at your word, would you minister to us? Thank you for this great book uh, that you inspired uh, Moses to, to write, to write down your words of historical narrative that we might know how these things are, um, that how the world began and how you began to work in redemptive history through these great uh, patriarchs. And so, uh, help us now, Lord, as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I trust that each of you are doing well and that you are, uh, your 2024 is going well and you're able to uh, continue on in all that is on your plates. And so know that we are praying for you and encouraged by what we're hearing in so many different uh, facets. We are going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 27, so you can be turning there as we continue to look at how God used uh, a twisted, dysfunctional family, but yet a covenant family that he had promised uh, to be his. And yet he used the events of their dysfunction to bring about great redemption. And uh, we're going to look at that this morning. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Genesis chapter 27, starting in verse 14, and we'll read through verse 29. Uh, forgive me for the um, typo in the bulletin. We will be going through verse 29. Um, that is my fault. I didn't communicate that correctly. This is God's word. So he went and took them 
and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. And then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so he went in to his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please, come near, and I may feel you, my son, to, not, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. And so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And then his father's, father Isaac said to him, Come near me and kiss me, my son. And so he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Passage like this may seem even unsettling. It's a great apologetic that it lifts not up the character of man, but rather exposes it. That if we were seeking to deceive people, we would certainly not put passages like this in the scriptures that would uh, show the sinfulness of man. And God, in his great wisdom, gave us stories like this, uncomfortable to read, yet exposing the very error of our ways. Have you ever lied? More specifically, have you ever got away with a lie? Don't speak out about what lie that is, but perhaps there's some in this room who have even told a lie and it's still not found out. Quite dangerous for us, is it not? We think about lying. Why, why is it that we lie? We see this in this text here that Jacob is certainly going along with his mother's plans, what we'll come back to. But often we lie for many different reasons, to cover up something. But initially, lies come because of fear, because of being uncomfortable, to be exposed. No one likes their lies to be exposed. No one really wants to be seen for who they really are. And so we hide. It's human nature to hide, to hide the truth, to hide that cookie we stole, to hide deeper things, to hide even our emotions, to hide the truth about a variety of issues. Some whole organizations dwell on deception and silence or secrecy. Right here in our text this morning, we see a patriarch of the faith lying through his teeth. Many years ago in California, you may have heard, it was a nationwide manhunt for two women who had supposedly abducted uh, a woman uh, named Sherry Papini. And if you've seen this uh, before or heard of her name, she's synonymous with one of the largest 
law enforcement hoaxes in really our day so far. She apparently was kidnapped and um, held and beaten and was um, then returned three weeks later, found on a interstate in California uh, in chains and badly bruised. And over the course of many weeks, as police investigated and sought to understand this situation, it was revealed that the whole thing had been a complete hoax. She had gone for a run. She had supposedly been kidnapped. She'd left her phone on the side of the road. She had been picked up by a former friend and taken over 400 miles away. And the whole thing was a hoax. Law enforcement eventually found this, and federal prosecutors later said that this hoax had led to wasted resources, had misled even the FBI, and caused police to investigate innocent parties. Further, these, this family received compensation from a victim's fund, over $30,000, and ultimately Sherry's lies began to be unwoven, and pressures within the community and her life causing the lose of loss of respect nationwide for her and her hoax and her lying. And lying ultimately devastated her family, ending in divorce and even losing her children, all because she felt uncomfortable with the way her life was going. Now, while that's a dramatic story of real life, it's often that we find ourselves in situations that we are tempted to do exactly what Jacob is doing in this passage. Let's take a look at this as we see the plot unfolding that we looked at last week. Remember that this plot ultimately didn't start in Jacob's mind. It started in his mom's mind. Rebecca, if you might see here, taught Jacob how to do this. We don't know that this was taught in his upbringing, but we know that it was tolerated. We get an inside look like a fly on the wall into the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah and their twin sons who have been fighting since birth. And while they all had the reality that God was going to use this, that there's two wrestling in her womb, that the older would end up serving the younger, that God in his great redemptive plan had his eye on Jacob, not Esau. And so we looked at this in weeks past, but let's continue to look at this plot. And the reason we're pausing here to just look at this is because I think there's some great truth that we can mine from this passage prior to moving on to the result. Even though the suspense is building and we're wondering, oh my goodness, is he going to get caught? And eventually, yes, it's made known, but in this context, the lie is still continuing. So we're going to see in verse 14 through 17 here the preparation of the plot. It's, it's multifaceted, and it's between him and his mother that are working through this. But secondly, we're going to see that there's a predicament that happens in verses 18 through 24. Isaac is very suspicious, and yet he can't trust his own eyesight, let alone his aging ears. And Jacob seems to prevail in this way. Then thirdly, we're going to look at really how the plot progresses as Jacob is being able to what seems to be pulling this off and ultimately the pronouncement of the blessing by Isaac to Jacob. So let's take a look at these. Look at verse uh, 14 um, quickly. It, it tells us that, that uh, in, in these earlier passages that Rebekah was listening to Isaac. She had heard what Isaac was going to do in blessing Esau, and Isaac, being uh, very fond of Esau's food, sent him to go hunt for wild game. But Rebecca had a skill set of her own. She was a good cook. I don't know how she made goat taste like wild game, but she did. She was an excellent cook. She was raised in the south, the south of Israel. But we see here that she has prepared food for her husband and used skills that were matching Esau's. From the flow of the text, it seems that Esau did his own preparation as well. So it's very interesting that while these two men grew up in the same home, they were very much attuned with food preparation. 
Food is the context of really their lives. It's very interesting that this is the case. Isaac loved Esau, it says earlier in this, uh, uh, this narrative, going back to chapter 25, because Esau was good at hunting game. And yet, Rebekah was showing favorites towards Jacob. Jacob grew up in the kitchen. We know this is the context of being more homely. We find out that he is not only a great cook, but he had produced a stew that in the context of that stew, that Esau had sold his birthright. And so this, this theme continues here, and it's around food, it's around family, and it's around great deception, and yet God's blessing in the midst of it. Maybe that sounds like your family. We're all dysfunctional. We are getting shown the great kindness of God and his blessing on us in Christ. And yet, we often gather around food, don't we? But the hearts of those around the table are something that God is working at and and working through that process. And we see this insight into their family, and it doesn't look good, does it? And so there's this preparation. So in verse 14, notice that... um, Rebecca has told him to obey her voice, and Jacob does. And he goes, and notice it says he took the goats and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared the delicious food. Perhaps Jacob is realizing, I can't pull this off. I might be able to pull off some really good things, like um, uh, you know, wrangling the, the, ble- or the birthright for my brother. But man, to, to cook like Esau and to cover this up, he needed mom's help. And notice that it's such as his father loved. It's mentioned multiple times in this passage that Isaac loved food. He had a tongue that was uh, discerning of goodness. He had a tongue that appreciated good food. He could taste. His sense of taste was amazing. And isn't that interesting in the context of his failing hearing and failing eyesight? that often God bringing our old age heightens the uh, senses in other directions. It's been, I've had several blind friends over the course of my life and they often talk about how their other senses are on overload because of their blindness. They can hear anything. In fact, we had a, a roommate on our hall in college and he was blind and we would uh, sometimes make faces, and he would make jokes. He says, I saw that. He just could feel that we were doing something wrong in his presence. And he would make jokes, and we would, um, we would tease him at times, and you think that's pretty low, but it was, it was a Christian college, but we were doing it in love. We didn't, we didn't hurt him, but we teased him. But he often taught us much about what it meant to be able to see and to hear, and the, the senses were, were uh, again, on overload, that he was able to be quite empathetic towards us at times when we were struggling and he was more introspective even though he couldn't see. Well, here with Isaac, he is, he is, his sight is failing, but he hasn't lost his sense of taste. It's something that's great. Many that are aged have said that food begins to lose its taste even, and so that has not yet happened to Isaac we're thankful for that. And yet, it's in this context that, that she is making food for her husband that he loves. It's around the context of a great meal that great deception is happening. Look at verse 15. It says, Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son. She realizes that part of this plot is to, to be able to pull this off, that she knows her husband is going to want to bless her son, and therefore there's going to be some touching involved, and there needs to be a, a, a more deceptive cover. And so she gets the best garments of Esau, who no doubt smelled like the outside. He, for whatever reason, left them there, and which were with her and in the house, it says, and they, she put them on Jacob, her younger son. And then the skins of the young goats that she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. Now it seems kind of interesting here that you would think that this couldn't fool Isaac in the midst of a, uh, knowing what a goat feels like. But these goats uh, weren't maybe like the goats that you know. They were soft, soft hair, almost like human hair. And so the deception could have been 
uh, pulled off in this way. And notice that she put these on his hands. We don't know how she's attaching them, but either way, she, she covers his smooth skin. And notice she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared, notice this context, into the hand of her son Jacob. She was going to plan it, she was going to prepare it, but she would not execute on it. Why? Well, it's very interesting. Surely, Rebecca wanted Jacob to be blessed. But if you remember, God himself told Rebecca that he would have the blessing. He did not instruct her to do it in this way, to get it. It's very interesting in this, how this is all played out, that while she is going to deceptive practices, the ultimate end of the story is, yes, it was God's purpose and plan to bless Jacob, not Esau. We knew that from the very beginning. We looked at the Romans passage in Romans chapter 9 before they did whether good or evil, that God chose Jacob to be the one that inherited the blessing. So how is it that God is working these things? Well, we see that he is ultimately going to bring this to pass, which we'll come back to. But secondly, we don't just see the preparation of this plot, but secondly, look at the predicament. Look at verse 18. What is the predicament? Well, Isaac is curious, and we'll see this in multiple places here. Notice he says, starting in verse 18, So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. And notice his next question, who are you, my son? In other words, which one is it? Is it Jacob or Esau? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now, notice we got some issues here. We have these suspicions. The first suspicion here is in verse 18. He says, who are you? Well, this may have not been planned because... Often you can't plan how these things are going when you're trying to hold a cover. And notice, he answers, he says, I am Esau, your firstborn. There's the lie. He just bold-faced lie to his father. And notice he says, I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Notice that those who are... Uh, lying are often trying to get to a particular action or uh, a particular place. So he's leading this. Jacob is, is wanting this to move along a little bit quicker because his dad's asking questions. And the worst thing for a liar is questions. Isn't that what God does when we hide we saw that in the context of with Adam and Eve after they took of the forbidden fruit. What did God say? Adam, where are you? It doesn't mean that Adam had a good hiding spot. It didn't mean that God was ignorant of his whereabouts. But nevertheless, questions shoot towards truth. Adam, where are you? Oftentimes, we see in the scriptures that God even asks where information is coming from. Who told you that? But right here, Isaac is asking questions, and there's no greater threat to a liar than questions. So in verse 20, you think it could get easier and this is going to move along. But no, there's a second suspicion. Look at what Isaac says to his son. He says, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? Isaac is well over 100 years old. He knows that his son over the last 40 years has been growing in skill and that it takes time to find wild game, let alone to drag it home, prepare it, and then cook it, and then present it. And so in his mind, he's like, which one of you is this? Secondly, how is it that this happened so quickly? And you think lying would, would be easy at this point, but notice it gets worse. Jacob implicates even God in this deception. Look at the end of verse 20. He answers and says, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Wow. Now, in one way, that's true. God is making this a successful plot. In his providence and his decree, but... It's a lie because he really didn't go out to the field and he really didn't kill that game. He took goats and had mama's help. 
And so this is the second suspicion. How have you done this so quickly? The production of, of uh, Jacob follows to cover it up by saying, ah, God granted his success. Praise God. You haven't been lied to then until you've been lied to by a Christian. Oh yeah, God's given us, he's blessing us. We use God and we implicate him even in our deceptions. Then verse 21, it continues. Isaac says to Jacob, please come near me. Oh man, you're going to come near dad. That I may feel you, my son, and know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So the suspicion's still there, the third action of suspicion. And how does Jacob handle it? Verse 22, this back and forth here, went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him. See, Rebekah had foreseen this and therefore put the goat skins on him. And notice it still doesn't really fool Jacob or Isaac because it says the voice, he says the, this is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Us fathers or you parents are probably running around in your mind, hey, do you think I could detect if I was blind the voices of my children? There's no doubt you can. There's no doubt in your mind. He might have been trying to uh, cover up his voice. We don't know. But he says that this is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Verse 23, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And now for the last suspicion, look here at the end of verse 23, so he blessed him, but even in the context of that, he says in verse 24, are you really my son? Hey, the last ditch effort to kind of uncover any deception is just a straight up ask, surely I can just trust the voice of whoever is speaking to me. He says, are you really my son? And he answers, I am. Jacob's in deep. You ever been in deep? thing about a lie is you got to keep lying. It's dangerous. It's scary. It's amazing the challenge that lying brings to try and seek to wiggle our way out of such a predicament. Matthew Henry, in his commentary many years ago, the famous Puritan wrote this, speaking of Jacob, how could he say that he was his brother? How could he say, eat my venison, when he knew it came from the field and was but goat? How would he do such a thing to lie that something was from the, from the field when it was really from the fold? But I especially wonder how he could have assurance to father it all upon God and to use his name in this cheat. The Lord thy God brought it to me. Is this Jacob? Is this Israel indeed without guile? It is certainly written not for our imitation, but for our admonition. I think he's got it exactly right there. That something about this text the way that God put it there in this way, the suspense is building. We can see ourselves in this text. We can see the temptation to be so scared that we feel the only way is to lie. And from you children all the way to the oldest of us in the room, we are tempted in many ways to hide truth, to be deceptive. And I know some of you are thinking, well, isn't it, isn't it you know, wise sometimes to be deceptive? I mean, after all, that's how some people held, hid the Jews during the Holocaust. True. There are times that deception, even in God's plan and purposes, are used for good. And we're seeing that in this text as well. But no, we are not called as God's people to be people of deception. We're called to be people of the truth. You see this in the context in multiple ways where God uses his great deliverance of his people. But even in the midst of great truth, we entrust ourselves to God who is able to deliver us. 
Isn't there enough information that has been given to both Isaac and Rebekah that they should stop looking to Esau as the one they're to bless? Yes. Isaac should have been convinced from Esau's behavior in taking foreign wives, let alone selling his birthright, that he was not worthy to take that blessing. And Rebekah is, in fact, correct that it should go to Jacob. But it does not give them the right to do it in this way. Their faith is definitely future tense, but not present tense. They believe God was going to put these things into practice, and yet they're doing it their way. It's a classic position of God's will their way. Is this not what Abraham was tempted to do? Eh, you know, Sarah, you got a great idea. Let's take Hagar, and I'll have children through her, and perhaps God will raise up a blessing, and God says no. You see, it's not just God's word but it's also God's way. It's not just how he presents it, but ultimately how he's going to bring it to pass. And the latter is where our faith struggles. Even in our day, we read texts like 1 Peter and 2 Peter that speak of times to come and we hear the mocking voices of the world saying, well, Jesus came 2,000 years ago and he said he's coming back. You all are fools to live this way, waiting for a Messiah who will never return. And yet Peter says, some count the promises of God as slackness, but we know that our redemption draws near. Our faith is challenged by that ladder. We know what his word says, but trusting that he can bring it out in our dysfunctional circumstances is the issue that God is getting at. Can we ultimately trust him? Can we look to him to not only promise, but be the fulfiller of that promise? All kinds of applications here. You young people, are you, you think that God doesn't care about your future, that he hasn't enlightened you on what is next? Is he not able to do that? But he does it one day at a time. We want to see our whole life unfold. And he says no. Some of you single people are wondering, hey, maybe the Lord has a spouse for me in the future. How do I do that? How, how, what, what am I supposed to do? And God just says, trust me. Does he not care about you? Just like he cared for your parents and every generation prior to you that he brought them a spouse in his time and his way? Are you trying to do his will your way? The applications are, of course, numerous in our own situations that we are seeking to twist the arm of God as if we could, and we are found wanting. But notice that this predicament is where we can truly see ourselves. We are in a predicament. We are caught. Look at how the plot progresses. Look at verse 25. It says that then he said... Uh, this is Isaac, bring it to me that I may eat my son's game and bless you. So it's in the context of this food that he is going to bless him. And so he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then he says in verse 26, then, this then his father Isaac said to him, come near me and kiss me, my son. So he came and he kissed him and Isaac smelled the gar of his garments and blessed him. It's very interesting, this context here of how Jacob prepares, or Isaac prepares to bless Jacob. And this is something we should notice because I think there's some uh, redemptive value here. While this is a big facade of Jacob, ultimately uh, the blessing is passing to his son. And it gives us a picture here of blessing. There's many uh, times uh, in the Old Testament that we see fathers blessing the next generation. And yes, in this context, it was the redemptive line. This is why the scriptures are, are following this very closely. But I think there's a biblical principle here on blessing the next generation in this sense. And so if you look at this, notice how he blessed him. First of all, in verse 26 and 27, he embraces him. I find that interesting in the context of our, with our own children that Isaac is wanting to be near him. It's natural. It's how God created us to be. We are called to be in close proximity to one another. 
which obviously can lead to problems. Any of you that have stories from the COVID lockdown days, you know that your enemies were those of your own household because you couldn't stand each other. You were locked in together. There's cabin fever, if you will. But notice he embraces him. Affection is needed. Us parents are challenged by this, that our, our children need the embrace of their parents. Sons need hugs from dad and mom. There's studies that have been done on the lives of even teenage girls and boys in the sense of how affection affects them. And while they don't ask for it, they want it. They need it. This is a reason that some young ladies will run in too soon into the arms of a young man in an unhealthy way because they're not getting that affection elsewhere. It's very true that young men need the encouragement of their own mothers, and we see this in this passage as, as Rebecca is closely coming around her son, and yet she's teaching him in an ungodly way in how to deceive. But notice, secondly, at the end of verse 27, he praises Jacob, and he says, uh, you, the smell of my son is as the, uh, the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. And while he's thinking he's doing it to Esau, he's ultimately praising his son. Now, there's multiple issues here. We don't want to just look at how he's blessing him. But notice that, that Isaac is very much an error here in blessing Esau in this way. Because he knew that Esau should not be blessed in this way. Isaac knew that, and yet he's doing it anyway. And then lastly, notice that he, um, he brings this before God in verse 28, that he says, Let or may God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth. So as he prays for him, ultimately, a part of the blessing is prayer. And so the redemptive value here is that parents, we need to bless our children in these ways. It's very biblical to embrace our children, to, to encourage them in what they're good at, to teach them in the way that they ought to go, but also to pray for them. That is the, the context of this blessing. But notice that this blessing is a multifaceted. There is the call of Isaac towards his son, who he thinks is Esau, but really Jacob, in this context of this meal. And notice that the blessing involves the blessing of heaven and earth. It might even reminisce in how Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, that may, um, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. He gives the blessing of plenty of grain. But then he speaks of power, and he says, let the people serve you, and the nations bow down to you. So it speaks of great power. It speaks of great authority to be lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. It speaks of position as well. And then there's really a quotation of the promise made to Abraham here at the end of verse 29. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It's, it's, it's almost an exact quote from what God had quoted to Abraham a generation before. Either way, this blessing is the, the fulfillment of what would come. It's a connection, if you will, to God's redemptive journey in this process. So we're looking at this from an outsider's perspective, but what about us? In what ways are we able to see applicable truth to our lives? Well, there's multi, uh, a multifaceted um, approach here, but some ways that I, I think we can look at are five, five ways. First of all, it's very clear that in the context of this scripture that the sin of lying and deception comes right off the page at us. Plotting, deceiving, lying while they're used in the providence of God are sinful. And they reflect the disposition of our sinful hearts and the disposition of Satan more than the truthfulness of God. God in his truth wants us to be truth tellers about him, about his gospel, concerning these things. But what's beautiful and redemptive about this passage that God works in spite of our sin. 
that if we find ourselves in doing these ways that we are deceivers and we are unhealthy in that way, that we can trust that God is going to still use that. That's the fact of our lives, that we have sinned in this way, that God will use even our sin for his righteous purposes. But the con- condemnation, the reason why it is so difficult for Jacob and Rebekah to hold this together is because it's wrong. It's not of nature for us to act this way. It is a sinful nature that drives this. But secondly, I want to take a look at Rebecca because lying and deception and plotting apparently were taught to Jacob. We go back to uh, earlier parts of this passage that we see uh, very uh, short conversations between Isaac and Rebekah. We know that Jake, the context of Esau selling his birthright a couple of chapters ago, was in the context of a meal. We cannot know that, that Isaac and Rebecca were in the room, but either way, this behavior, this competition had been growing over the course of their uh, young lives. Parents, in what ways are we allowing a spirit of competition and even deception to reign in our homes? Are we correcting that? Are we challenging that? Are we ministering to our children's hearts as we see it and God exposes that? These were seemingly regular habits in Isaac and Rebekah's home. It makes us think of the proverb that says it's better to have a dry morsel where love is than a house full of feasting with strife. And while we can all love good food, oh, how much sweeter it is when we're enjoying everyone's presence at that table. So, lying, deception, these things the Lord should bring to our hearts that we are to be truth-tellers. And I think I'll add to this is that we need to be truth-tellers even about the gospel and about God. It is so important and so sly sometimes as I hear preachers uh, expounding about the love of God, but not speaking of the context of his judgment. In fact, in a way, we're not giving the full gospel We're making empty promises that when people come to Christ, life will get better. And while positionally, yes, they will, it's not promised in the scriptures that our lives will get easier. In fact, in some places, life gets harder. I really commend Ms. McConnell's book. He's a church planter in Scotland and wrote a book uh, on such things as why did life just get harder? And he's writing to new Christians that many of these people coming to Christ out of the slums of Scotland learn about new life in Christ, and they're like, why did my life just get harder? It's because they're swimming upstream. They're of a people that is of a different country that is yet to come. Their surroundings they're no longer uh, familiar with. They're strangers, they're aliens, and so is everyone who comes to Christ. Christ has made all things new. And we find ourselves living as truth-tellers in a world that maximizes deception every day. And when you think about it, the father of lies, that's what all sin is. The reason it's tempting is because it's a lie if you do this. If you take this shortcut in business, if you, if you mess over that guy and steal his money, then you'll be okay. Everybody's cutting corners, don't you know? Everybody's cheating on their taxes. It's the only way to get by. Stealing is the only way to, to make it happen, right? Everybody cheats, and so the lies continue as we seek to cover them up in our characters. Thirdly, notice Isaac had words that had power. Men specifically, I'll get to women in a second, but notice men that your words have power. Don't waste them. When dads pay attention to their kids and speak to them in full consciousness, and you men know what that is, and you women are laughing because you know that we can actually talk without thinking, that we have words, and those words carry powerful context. We are called to protect and provide for our families. We are called to not be passive, but to lead. But it's often in the context, not even of of character, but missed opportunities that we wound our children the most. Maybe it's ignoring them. 
Or maybe it's saying an unkind word at their expense. Or a joke that I've often found are some of the ways that I've wounded my children the most. This sense of competition between siblings that should be carefully shepherded and watched. That we learn the valuable lessons and skills for life in the context of the home, often around the context of eating together. And it's very scary. You can look at the research. There's very few families that are even eating together, let alone staying together. It's very dangerous, the situation we're in in our world today. Children, I want to encourage you that while it is very important that you heed God's word to obey your parents, you're also called to walk with Jesus yourself and not participate in the sins of your parents. A passage like this is clear. Rebecca had all these great ideas. She knew how to manipulate her husband with good food and great conversation. She could make wild game taste like, or goat taste like wild game. She was deceptive in her cooking. She was deceptive in her practices. She was uh, deceptive in her conversations with her children, undermining the authority of her own husband. God challenges us, doesn't he? He makes a way for us to see our own sin. Fourthly, I have two more. While Jacob clearly played a part and sought to supplant his brother, and this is what his name means, a deceiver or a supplanter, God's kindness and redemption is made evident in bringing this blessing Jacob's way despite the way that they did it. In fact, ultimately, God was going to use someone in Jacob's own bloodline to deliver him from this condition. It's amazing if you look at the imagery here that an animal is sacrificed, its food and its flesh cooked in such a way as to cover up that it's something else. And the skin of this dead animal is placed on Jacob to deceive his father that he is really Esau, and yet there would be one who would clothe Jacob with his righteousness before the foundation of the world. And it's being released to him and understood by Jacob the more that he grows that this God is one that is showing favor unto him, but not because of his works, but because of his. Took upon himself, Jacob, let alone all of us, that sin and replacing it with his robes of righteousness. Jacob was a recipient of God's great grace. And so lastly, what I want to urge upon you and most important, I guess, of these applications is that while we are God's ones that have received his grace and redemption and his redemptive promises, let us remember it is not of our own works. And this is multifaceted, first of all, for all you uh, people that think you're goody-two-shoes, okay? The, the double-sided thing here is if you tend to do the right thing and you realize everybody else is doing the wrong thing, yeah, you know who you are, and you always are looking at the, the sins of others, but you tend to have a pretty straight ship and everything's organized and you are righteous. Beware, it is not your righteousness, it is not your performance that puts you in good standing with God. That should not discourage you from doing what is right, but it should encourage you to praise God because the position you're in is because Christ has purchased that for you. But you have to guard yourself because the Pharisees were of a type like this that was constantly been preached by Christ for them to repent of. They were blind, if you will, to their own sin. It was easy to look down their nose at sinners, but not to see that they were whitewashed tombs. So that's the first side. The second side is where I think most of us can relate. Life has beat us up. We, have, we know our own sin. We can't even stop thinking about it. And it's constantly on our minds. And we're constantly looking at Jacob's life and saying, dude, I, I've done something like that before. It's awful to feel the weight of having to lie and got to keep it a secret. I don't want people to see our sin. What will they think? We're man pleasers. We're idolaters. We care more about what people think than what God thinks. And we're 
in chains, even as believers. And clearly, Jacob was chosen by God, but it wasn't of his own works. I want to encourage you this morning that while Jacob's works were evil, he was still under the favor of God's redemptive choice of him. He loved Jacob, it says. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And he, in his own electing love, is preached in this passage that despite his wickedness, that God took us sinners while we were dead in the trespasses of sin without hope in the world. God redeemed us for his glory. God forgave us by his great grace. He gave us his righteousness. And when God looks at us, he looks at us and blesses us like Isaac blessed Jacob. It's not what we are. We know that's not what we are. But God gave us that positionally in Christ. That excites me. Why? Because it breathes hope for our horrible situations that all of us find ourselves in. And if you don't believe you're in that situation, you are deceived. You need this righteousness. Like Luther said, the greatest need of man is to be justified before the living God. So whether you find yourself saying, I've never lied, and you see your great, should see your great need of your own pride and arrogance. You cannot stand before the holy God. There'll be very many moral people that will suffer an eternity in hell. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ wasn't applied to their account. And at the same time, while we might think that certain people should suffer and die for eternity for evil things they've done, not until Jesus steps in. There may be people in heaven that we weren't expecting to see there because it is of Christ's grace not of works, lest any man should boast. And so great hope comes off this page. The gospel is presented that many years from now through the very redemptive line that we're reading about, one would come that would establish righteousness, would die on the cross, would rise again, he would perfectly fulfill God's commands. He would perfectly pay for the penalty of the sin of his people. And he would ultimately put them in a position where they could be delivered and ultimately redeemed one day that we could be with God. And the lie of Satan is undermined. The curse of death reversed, which we will celebrate in just a few weeks with the resurrection. And yet God is magnified. God is the main character in this text. In the midst of all the dysfunction, God brings order. Is he bringing order to your life this morning? In what ways do you feel like your soul is in turmoil? Is he not able to care for it? Is he not even able to take your darkest secrets, bring light upon them by his gospel, and forgive you? We as a church... Are we able to look at our brothers and sisters in that same purity, washed in the blood of the Lamb? Great applications with multiple ways that it can be applied to our own souls. But God, in his great grace, gives us this story. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses pens it with great, great suspense. Is he going to get away with this? Is he going to get away with this? And yet one steps in. And we'll see that ultimately in God's timing and in God's purposes, he is our deliverer. He is our hope. He was the hope of Jacob. He was the hope of Esau. And he is our hope and can be our hope in the context of a very confusing, dysfunctional world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you how your word just tends to expose us to show us who we really are and God we hate what we see but the most challenging thing is we can't change ourselves we can only be changed by you that Lord you in your great kindness even as saved sinners we find ourselves plotting deceiving, lying, just like we see in Jacob's life. It's all too familiar. You're reading our mail, Lord. You're challenging us. You're calling us to account. 
And God, I just pray that you would minister to us in this way. You would help us to not be deceived of our own sin. But also, Lord, that you would breathe hope to those who feel like they're unworthy to be loved. That if, if people knew what I have done, they wouldn't love me. And yet, you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. There should be nothing more freeing to be in a position with you that enables us to be honest truth tellers. So I pray for each one in this room, regardless of what is going on in their lives, that they would humble themselves and respond to you. That, Lord, you would shine your light into their darkness. Give them hope where they need hope. Give them conviction where they need conviction. Breathe encouragement and equipping power for them to live out what you have already worked in by your great grace. And Father, would you help us to see, even in the life of the patriarchs, that ultimately you were the fulfillment of all these promises. That the fulfillment or the promise is a person. It's a person of God. He is our hope, our only hope. And Father, help us to rejoice in that great truth that you might be glorified and that we might be satisfied. In Jesus' name.